That's it. That's it. At 11.59. Yeah. Right. We need your thesis statement in the next 10 minutes. All right. Yeah. Get started. All right, cool. Um, we'll, we'll pray and get started. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we praise your name above every other name. We thank you for yet again another beautiful day on your green earth, the time that we get together as brothers and sisters. Um, Lord, I pray as we finish our, our study on apologetics, finish discussing what it looks like to defend our faith, um, looking at what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to convey that effectively to people. Um, I pray that, that you bless this time that we've been able to have, and I, I thank you for this opportunity that Brad and I get to stand in front of these amazing people and just discuss uh, things about you, uh, the truth, your word. I thank you. I ask as we continue through this this time that you would grant us your wisdom, your guidance, your direction, and that we would not rely on our own understanding of scripture. And it is in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> and I like to start as always for anyone who hasn't been in here. We are recording. This will show up on Wednesday on all the major podcast networks. So if you don't want to hear your voice, don't talk. But we want you to talk. So it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, so we are going to talk a few, about a few different things. Austin, as you see, has brought a number of tools and a number of books to, that he uses when, when studying. Uh, we're going to go, go through some of those, and we're going to talk about a few supposed contradictions that we find in the scripture and talk about why they exist. Hard quote, unquote, supposed. Yeah. Why they exist and, and how we can answer some of these questions that people come up with. So I don't have any slides this week. Um, yeah, this week was this week was a lot. Yeah, sure, we'll go with that. Um, so, <laughs> if that answers your question, <laughs> here, hang on. Remind me at 10 p.m. to send the notes out. Hang on. Nice. There we go. So we're in there at 10 o'clock tonight. I'll get a reminder and I'll do it. All right. <laughs> so, don't. Don't. <laughs> What's with the laughter? <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So uh, I need someone to look up Matthew 28. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. I need someone to look up Mark 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Look up Luke 24. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. And John 20, verses 1 through 10. I got John. Um, I got Luke. So we're going to look at those. Uh, Spoiler alert, that is the four accounts of the resurrection. And so what I want you guys to do while, we're, while you're listening to people read these passages, um, make note, mental note or make, make, you know, write down a, some differences and variances you see throughout these four, uh, four accounts of the resurrection. So Matthew 28, 1 through 10, who has that? Okay. All right, go for it. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, he is risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. 
There you will see them. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. All right, who has Mark 16, 1 through 8? Okay. <laughs> when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could go to anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? Looking up, they observed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in long white and in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were amazed and alarmed. Don't be afraid, he told them. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has resurrected. He is not here. See the place where they put him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. So they went out and started running from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them as they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Luke 24, 1 through 12. I got that one. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. As it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, but they did not believe, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. And finally, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, 
who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Alright, so there are four different accounts of the resurrection. So, what differences, what variances, what kind of... If you were looking to, you know, cast some doubt on these uh, accounts, what would you point to? What are some things that people point to? John, probably. John, John. the most pronounced differences as far as the, the angels weren't there. Right. Mary went by herself and then ran and told the others, and then John and uh, Peter came and went in instead of the women. Right. Well, John focused on Mary Magdalene. That was that was the focus of his uh, the scriptures that he wrote. But it doesn't necessarily say they weren't there by you know. It doesn't say she was alone. Right. Yeah. But he just it's uh, it's the omission that people are taking as. Uh, you know, trying to prove a negative, I guess. Right. right. Well, then you have, <clears throat> uh, I think it's Matthew and Luke, one saying that there were two angels, another saying that it was Jesus who appeared to them and, and they recognized him, and then another saying that it was just one man dressed in white sitting next to it. So for me, that would, that would probably be the biggest one, saying, okay, well, exactly who did they see? Uh, who was it? Was it Jesus or was there an angel? Were they two or one? Yeah. What else? So in that John 20, uh, they referenced the uh, face cloth. Yeah. And I, and I wondered, whenever, whenever I first heard of that and learned about the Shroud of Turin and uh, how the Shroud of Turin shows what seems to be Jesus' face impression on the, on the linen grave clothes, yeah. there's, there's a reference to the face cloth. So that's a separate. That's a separate thing. This is kind of a sidebar, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but does that, has that ever struck a chord with any of you guys that uh, that there's a separate cloth that covered his face as opposed to the shroud of Turin, where it's one long piece of linen or whatever? That's a good question. I, I've never really dived too deep into it. I've heard of, I've heard of that before. Yeah. Um, Same. Yeah. I always thought it was interesting. <laughs> definitely how it was separate and it was folded. Well, I, I get that picture of you know Jesus comes back to life and he just kind of sits up and he's folds it and he's like all right let's go but I've never really dived too deep into that now that's interesting so Chuck actually kind of made the point that I was gonna make is that many people think because like only one woman's mentioned or one angel was mentioned uh, that there was no one else present and it's an argument from silence so Think about like saying, okay, Austin and I went to go see a movie yesterday. And we went with Chuck and Cheryl. And we had a really good time. Well, later I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to Rachel and I'm going to say, well, Austin and I went and saw a movie yesterday. But then I talk to Trevor later and I say, okay, uh, I went to see a movie yesterday. So do that, does that make my story inconsistent? No, it just means I'm not necessarily sharing all the details with every person I talk to, right? And so I do think that is a, a great way to say, look, he doesn't say these other things, these other elements aren't present. These other things aren't there, right? It's, we just, they're focusing on different pieces of the story. So think about a courtroom and you think about witnesses. If 
every single witness shared the exact same story verbatim, would that hold up well in court? I think they were up to something. They got their stories, you know, fixed before. Yeah. I think Honor thinks that that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> right? So when any lawyer worth worth his salt, worth the money you're paying him, would see that every single eyewitness account was identical. And they would say something is wrong here. That this cannot be valid. This can't be... Um, it's not the way it works. Not the way it works. People are going to remember different things. I mean, yeah. if... if if the four of us see a car accident and witness a car accident, we're all four going to have some different variations of that accident. We're going to viewpoints. We're going to have different viewpoints. We're going to see. I'll see it from one angle. Austin will see it from a different angle. Yeah. And it tells the entire story once you put it all together. Right. So uh, these supposed contradictions within the resurrection story don't pose a lot of problems. In fact, I would argue they kind of validate the resurrection story. Because, again, it's not that these four authors were coming together and saying, okay, here's exactly what happened. Let's make sure we write it down exactly and we keep the details exactly the same. If that were to happen, we would say, hey, something's not right here. Right. It's right. actually a stronger case. Right. And just like, okay, all four of us go see a movie. We have, we have different likes. We have different dislikes. <clears throat> we have different things that we are paying closer attention to than the others. So even walking away from that movie, we're going to have different scenes that we liked more, mm -hmm. and we are going to emphasize on those scenes more. That's what we see with the four Gospels. We see that when Matthew is writing, he is predominantly writing to his Jewish audience. So his account is predominantly for the Jews. Mark, um, we see that everything is, is quickened. Everything is to the point, the facts, this is it, this is where it is. Um, with Mark and Luke, they were not eyewitnesses to these events. What they did was they collected these from eyewitnesses and they put them together. Like Luke says, I, um, excellent Theophilus, I get, I'm writing these down so you have certainty in what you believe. Whereas John, he, this is predominantly an evangelistic um, piece, not necessarily for Jews, not necessarily just for Gentiles, but they each have a different viewpoint and they're telling what they are emphasizing on. And so, and, and that's it. If it was written all by one person, like the Quran, then it would align a little bit better. Not that the Quran aligns up very well either, but, um, but yeah, they have different viewpoints. So they are discussing what they have seen or they are discussing what they have heard by those who have seen. Well, and so kind of to feed off of what he was saying too, uh, each gospel presents a unique depiction of Jesus, right? So Matthew focuses on the Messiah being as predicted by the Old Testament. Matthew's very much a fan of going back to the Old Testament saying this is why Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied about all these years ago. Uh, Mark, he focuses on the passion, the suffering of Christ. He focuses a lot on his <coughs> ministry and, and his death, his burial, his resurrection. Uh, Luke highlights that Christ is the Savior for all who believes, and John focuses more on the theological truth that Christ reveals the Father, so that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And is God. And is yeah. God. So when you keep those things in mind, especially looking at the Gospels, and I'm kind of focusing more on that today because this is where a lot of our questions come from. They question the Gospels. They question Jesus. We understand it. it's, it's going to allow a deeper understanding of these apparent contradictions. So... 
I kind of came through, and um, I'm actually just reading through a paper that I wrote because it's been a really long week uh, with <laughs> weddings and uh, him having tree trimming all over the nation, apparently. Yeah. But uh, working 16 to 19 hour days since Tuesday, so, yeah, so. I'm beat. Uh, so I'm going through this paper, and I, I read through, and, and I, have, I found first. Oh, sorry, good good night. I found uh, four main reasons that these contradictions are found in the Gospels. So uh, the first is paraphrasing and interpretation. So throughout the first century, uh, Jerusalem and its surrounding areas, many languages are being spoken. So throughout the region, you had Greek, you had Hebrew, you had Aramaic, you had Latin. They were all spoken by various groups of people. So it is very likely that Jesus spoke Aramaic, and the New Testament was written primarily in Greek. We talked about that, you know, a number of weeks ago. So this means that Jesus' words found in the Gospels were all translated from Aramaic to Greek. Uh, each Gospel writer had to interpret Jesus' teachings into a different language. This leads to the idea that the Bible contains Jesus' authentic voice rather than his exact words. If it is expected that the Gospel contains Jesus' exact words, then the Gospels are being held to a standard that no other historical text is able to meet. So, simply put, we get his voice. And so there are going to be a few translation differences from his original words to what we're reading now in English, you know, initially in Greek. Um, second reason that there are contradictions within the Gospels is this idea of abbreviation and omission. So again, I kind of alluded to that when we talked about the resurrection. When two people share versions of the same story, differences will be seen between them. This is not a problem with having two contradicting events, but it is a product of different perspectives of the same event. So um, we'll go for the third reason, too, uh, for finding supposed contradictions in the Bible is reordering of events and sayings. So throughout the Gospels, Jesus' teachings, major events, and sayings may seem out of order and contradictory. In Matthew and Luke, the last two temptations of Jesus are reversed. This can be explained by what the author found to be most important. Matthew indicates that the Sermon on the Mount was one long message, but reading Luke, it seems likely that the Sermon on the Mount is simply a compilation of Jesus' teachings. Both of these ideas are plausible. It is also likely that Jesus taught the same messages multiple times throughout his entire ministry. So look at John 21, 25. Someone can open that and read that one, please. John 21, 25. And there they also, and there also were many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So, and I'm going to get into a couple specifics here in a couple minutes, but when you see in one gospel, you see one story, Jesus cast demons, and they, and they use a specific number. They use a number of like seven as opposed to 30. or right. And we'll talk about specifics here in a minute. It's most the most likely scenario is that these are two different events, similar outcomes and similar miracles and similar things that he did, but two different events. And so the gospels aren't necessarily saying, okay, this is exactly what Jesus did. This is all Jesus did, and every single, you know, story is the same in each gospel. Right. It could be different events. It most likely is different events, especially like I said, John twenty one twenty five. If we were to record everything he ever said, everything he ever writ writ. Uh, wrote down, wait, if we wrote Jesus, down everything he said or everything he did, uh, we wouldn't be able to contain the, the volumes. Well, yeah. and you look at um, 
like if you just take the Gospels and just picked out just the things that Jesus said, it doesn't take three years to. That would be a lot of downtime if it's true. Just, just that over a three-year period. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so finally, the, the fourth reason why we see some of these supposed characteristics or contradictions is. Uh, they, the Gospels all contain reports of similar events and sayings. Uh, the book that I mentioned and I read called Jesus Interrupted, uh, the Bart Ehrman, Ehrman, Ehrman book uh, that points to why he now is an atheist or at least an agnostic, you know, possibly, but not a Christian anymore. He tries to point, uh, he tries to use this point to attempt to discredit the veracity of the Gospels, that there are similar events and similar sayings. So one of the examples given in his book is the timing of Jesus cleansing the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all place this event at the end of Jesus' ministry. John, on the other hand, places it at the beginning of his ministry. So there are a couple possibilities here. One, the writers simply place this event at the beginning or end of their books for narrative purposes. So they just moved it around a little bit, and they weren't trying to be chronological. They were just moving the, to fit their narrative or to fit their book that they were writing. The other possibility is that Jesus actually cleansed the temple more than once. Either way, this difference does not change any of the core doctrines of Christianity. So whether he cleansed the temple once and they put it at the end of the book or put it at the beginning of the book, or whether he did it a couple of times, doesn't change anything about our core beliefs, right? Doesn't hurt us, doesn't hurt our belief system, shouldn't do anything to shake our faith or to shake our belief that the Bible is the word of God and that it's true. So, one final thought. Not all differences should be considered contradictions. So, what's a contradiction? If I say, Trevor is a boy, and then in the same breath I say, Trevor is a girl. That's a contradiction, right? Both those things cannot be true at the same time. Any of these contradictions that we that people bring up to us, the vast majority of them are simply saying things that are not contradictory to each other. They're not saying they're two saying different the, truths. Yeah, they're saying differences. But differences in words, differences maybe in order, differences in maybe uh, you know the verbiage being used, but they're not actually saying two different truths. The sky is blue and the sky is black cannot be true at the same time. Right. So. Right. And, and as we go through um, <coughs> scripture, whenever we are having this discussion with people, predominantly most of them are are unbelievers that are coming in saying, uh, for for example, a small one is in Acts when it's talking about the Holy Spirit coming upon the twelve, and someone will point that out and be like, "Well, hold, hold on, hold on, there there wasn't twelve because remember Judas died, so there's only eleven. It's like. So they're like, that's a contradiction. It's like, well, no, if you read the rest of Scripture, go back to Acts 1, they appoint another apostle, and there's 12 again. And a lot of it is just... A lot of it. Yeah. They've read it, maybe, but they have not put two and two together. They have not read the Scripture as in a whole. But then also the other side of that, as in 1 Corinthians, talking about how the true understanding of Scripture comes from the Spirit. And if an unbeliever is reading through Scripture, they are not going to have the understanding as believers do. So there are things that they're reading that contradict each other. It's like, well, one, you have to read it as a whole. It, it fits together. It's not you read one book and then they're contradicting each other. you gotta, you got to put them together. 
and then the others of like, well, the Old Testament versus the New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, stuff like that. We, we hear that a lot, but it's like you got to take it as a whole. So someone do me a favor and look up Mark chapter 11. Now we're going to read verses 12 through 14. And somebody else go to Matthew chapter 22. Stand by, I gotta look, gotta find the verses here. And we are gonna read. Oh, hang on. Ooh, did I miss? Did I miss put that? <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry, Matthew 21. Matthew 21, uh, verses 18 through 22. So Mark 11, 12 through 14, Matthew 21, 18 through 22. Uh, let's start with Mark. Anybody? The next day when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Because it was not the season for figs, he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him. All right, Matthew 21, 18 through 22. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what, has, what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to the mountain, be, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And I failed to mention in Mark, sorry, Mark 11, verse 20, says, uh, and they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. So in Matthew 21, and this is one that I've been asked a couple times by people who, specifically my tattoo artist, who has read the Bible multiple times, it feels like, and will point out these small things here and there to me. This is one he has actually pointed out, um, where he says, uh, Matthew 21, the fig tree withered when? Immediately, right? Mark 11, when did the fig tree wither? I don't know, it's the day after they found it. The day, they found it the day after, right? And so he's like, well, that just means that... Uh, they didn't stick around they didn't, wither. Right. Well, he, <laughs> they say, again, they just point to this as a contradiction, saying, well, the Bible can't be reliable because that's two different stories, two different um, idea, or two different timelines of the same story. Very. How would you explain this, real quick? Anybody? The fact how? that the thing withered is the point. Okay. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? Well, immediately, I mean, they're talking immediately. Is that over a couple hours? That's pretty immediate when you're talking about it. But if they didn't stick around for the whole couple of hours. Right. Weren't these written a long time later? I mean, I don't know. Wouldn't that have something to do with it if these accounts were written down years later? Yeah, possibly. Mark writes with immediately between everything. It's true. Be a day later, and he's talking immediately. Right, immediately. straight into the point. 
So <clears throat> the best way that I that I found it, and just doing the research, the best way I found to explain this one is that Matthew places more importance on the miracle itself yep. over the chronological order in which it took place. So there is a chance, honestly, that yeah, they saw it immediately with her right then and there it happened. Or they came back the next day and saw it. Or it could have been two completely different events where he did it twice. We, we don't really know for sure. Point is, this does not affect the core belief of our, our the core of our beliefs. It also shouldn't detract from the veracity of Scripture, right? It should not indicate that the Bible is full of contradictions. These are things that can be answered. Again, kind of like Chris said, these were written years later, and a small detail like this is pretty inconsequential if you think about it. Well, and again, it's. It's leading away from the point, the whole point of the miracle, and why Jesus did it. And it, what does, what does the fig tree symbolize? What is the fig tree supposed to be? It's supposed to be Israel, right? It's Israel. And when a fig tree grows, as soon as the leaves come out, the figs come out with the leaves almost immediately. The the leaves come out and the figs start growing. And then uh, about like a month later, the figs are ripe. Now, it's saying that it's out of season. But the point was, this tree was in Jerusalem. Israel. It had great soil. God placed Israel here. This is the promised land. They should have been bearing fruit and they weren't. And he cursed the tree and it shriveled up and it died. Now, at, through script, not to get too, too off, um, but we, we see a difference. We see the fig tree, which is cursed, and it dies. It doesn't come back. But then there's the olive tree. The olive tree is different. The olive tree symbolizes the part of Israel that God has kept for himself as when he's talking, um, when Paul is talking in Romans, how he has kept 7,000 men in the time of Elijah that have not bent their knee. He has kept them, and they are not going to bend their knee to, to Baal. They're not going to bend their knee to the false gods. Um, the fig tree represents those who have. They have been cursed, and they have died, both physically and eternally. Whereas the, the, um, the olive tree represents those who have not bent the knee, and they flourish. Uh, so the point is with the fig tree is they had great soil, they should have been producing, and they did not. And they have not for a long time. And Jesus says, you're cursed, and it shrivels and it dies. And nowhere else in scripture do we ever see that it comes back. It's, it's gone. So just to kind of wrap up some of the contradictions and, and some of the, the kind of things that we hear a lot... Um, I'm just going to kind of repeat a few things I've said before. Uh, Jesus spoke and taught to so many people, countless people throughout his ministry. The, the verse we wrote that says that you know, we, we couldn't write everything down that he did and that he said. If you have Pete preach the sermon he preached today, and you listen to it in the first service, you listen to it in the second service, are there going to be some minor differences? Absolutely. He's not going to say the exact same thing. He's not reading from a script. He's not 
you know, recording it and then playing it back verbatim to you, he's gonna, there's going to be some differences every time he he's preaches this sermon. If you were to go to another church and preach this same exact sermon again, would there be some differences? Would there be some things left out, some things that he maybe says differently, or, or maybe he adds a point, maybe he takes a point away? It's going to happen. This is what happens, again, in the Gospels and throughout the Scripture, is that we're seeing Jesus speaking to various groups of people. And he's maybe saying the same message, right? He's telling the same parable. He's performing the same miracles. But there's going to be some differences because, I mean, Jesus was God. Jesus was also not a robot. He wasn't programmed to say the exact same thing the exact same way every single time. You see that... uh, Again, if, if I were to be doing this, or Austin and I were doing this to a group of teenagers, we're probably doing it in a different style. We're probably going to have a different approach, but doing it with, you know, mainly adults in here, we're going to have a different approach. So again, we change our styles to the audience, but the message stays the same. There's always going to be differences. There's always going to be some minor things that are different, and that, that doesn't take away from the reliability of Scripture. You know? It actually bolsters it. It actually improves it. Because again, it shows that we are not simply reading something from a script and then just regurgitating it back to you. Well, and and it does give you um, a viewpoint of looking at it. So when talking about the Gnostic Gospels, looking at the Gospel according to Peter or or the Gospel according to Thomas, like we've talked about, um, reading through the account of the resurrection there, there are differences, but it, it's the same. And there is nobody standing there watching Christ actually come out of the tomb. Whereas you read some of the Gnostic Gospels, and they explain how someone is actually standing there watching Jesus come out of the tomb. How, I think it's the Gospel according to Thomas, that um, it shows him stepping out of the tomb, and he's like 100 feet tall, his, his head goes into the clouds, and then a cross comes out of the tomb behind him, speaking and preaching the gospel and it's like we don't we don't see that in the other four gospels so it it gives you a reference point of like okay i i know that's that can't be right because it's it's not in the rest of them and there's there's no one that says that they were actually there all we see is someone arrived there and saw that nobody was there so it gives you reference points so i want to read uh second corinthians verse 11 Chapter 11, verses 1 through, I think, looks like 5. I wish you would bear with me in a little, in a little foolishness. Do not, or do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So the whole thing... Proclaiming another Jesus or another gospel, we reject it. Everything you hear, every every contradiction that you are faced with, every doubt that you have yourself, go to Scripture. 
I hope in these last, what, seven weeks, eight weeks that we have taught or, or we have shown you that the Bible is reliable and that we can trust it. We can, we can go to it. We can use it to teach, to preach, to rebuke, to admonish. Yeah. And that it's, it is the word of God. It is infallible. It is inerrant. And that everything you hear from, from, a, from a pulpit, everything you hear from a classroom, everything you hear from anyone who proclaims Christ, you can go back to Scripture, match it up with that, and if it doesn't match, red flags should go up. Yeah. And that it is okay, again, it's what the Bible's for. It is reliable. It is It's infallible. It's, it's, yeah. it's uh best book ever written. There you go. Yeah. So... Um, Austin has brought, as you can see, a plethora of books. Uh, my grandpa asked if he robbed a library. Um, I robbed my own library. It's fine. Uh, and we're going to kind of go through that. We're talk about some of the tools that we use when we're studying Scripture that, that again, kind of help us get a better understanding of what we're reading. Yeah. So. Uh, before we go into that, I, I do want to kind of open the floor up a little bit. Looking at apparent contradictions, looking at things like that, I want you guys to think about... Um, have you ever been in a situation where someone has asked you a question that either A, you don't know the answer, or B, you just had a hard time being able to relay that to them? Um, now, I'm not necessarily opening the floor for stories, saying, okay, how have you evangelized? Um, but being able to go to the root of, okay, knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to convey that effectively to people. And have you guys ever been in a situation where you have been talking to somebody, they've presented something to you, and it might have even caught you guys off guard. You're like, oh, I wasn't quite sure that was in the Bible, so you go back to Scripture. And uh, I've seen videos where people, they, they stump believers. They're like, hey... Um, uh, one of them I was listening to was uh, if if there was a book that talked about um, oh, I forgot what it was. There's something in the Old Testament, but they didn't tell them that it was scripture. They said if if there was a book that says something teaching about you know if someone did something and you they murdered them or killed them and stoned them and cut off their heads and stuff like that would you allow that book to be taught to your children and a lot of these christians are like well no of course not and they're like oh well and then they open up a bible and read that that little portion of scripture that says that in the law and they're like oh wow i didn't even know that was in there all of a sudden this professing believer is in my opinion is completely counted off, as in they, they don't know scripture, they don't know why that was in there. They don't know, okay, God said for this to happen because of X, Y, Z. And they weren't equipped enough to say, okay, um, go back and read the whole chapter, and if need be, the chapter before and the chapter after to give you context on why that's there. But the whole reason why we're doing this apologetics is so that you know what you believe and you're able to convey that effectively and you're able to go to scripture and point that out because then if not you'll you'll have people of the world be able to point something out to you and stump you um another one is uh this woman went to the old testament and talked about how abortion is okay in scripture 
I I forgot where that's at. I it's somewhere in somewhere in the law, but it was she was reading through it and granted she was reading through a very bad translation. Um, I think it was like the what's the one that we don't claim to be the Bible? The word? The message? The message, yeah. Or the passion. Or the passion. The passion. So she was reading through one of those translations. And it sounded awful. It did. It sounded awful. Like God said, Yeah, you yeah, you're allowed to kill your baby if this is if this has been done. It's like, okay, well no, go back and actually read and it talks about how if a woman cheats on her husband with another man and becomes pregnant, she is to drink it's a wormwood, I believe, something like that. And if it turns out that she cheated and that, that, that something with that baby, that baby will die. And so they take that as in, oh, well, abortion is okay. God said abortion's okay. So, well, no, no. The, one, that's God's judgment. That's God's judgment on this woman. And there, there's a lot more to that. But they pick out small things like this and they, they flip it on you really quick. Or go... So tattoos, going back to uh, when, not, not pointing them out, <laughs> when someone comes and says, okay, well, you, you say um, tattoos are bad and you say uh, don't, mark, don't mark your bodies and stuff like that. Well, what about the rest? It says don't, don't mar the edges of your beards and uh, don't roll the temples of your, your beard either. It's like, well, do you follow that too? And more times than not, you'll have Christians like, uh, um, I don't know. And at, one, that's good to tell them I don't know and come, not come up with something. But to be able to go through scripture as a whole and, again, know what we believe and why we believe it. So I'm done talking. Do, do any of you guys have situations that you have been in like that? I actually have one more that I forgot to mention. Uh, someone look up Matthew 27, verse 5, and someone else go to Acts chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. Uh, this is regarding the death of Judas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a common one that, that, uh, that I've heard a couple of different times. I got Acts. All right. Go ahead and read Acts 1, 18 and 19. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama. Akeldama. That is, field of blood. So Matthew 27, uh, verse 5 is specifically about his death, and, and but there's more to it. But someone read 27, verse 5 for me. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and tamed himself. So what are some of the differences we see here? We see in, in Matthew where he threw the pieces of silver back into the temple, or back into the priest, and yep. then in, in Acts we see where he purchased a field with the money. Right. And he fell and he burst open. Right. A any ideas as to how we can reconcile those, those stories, those two accounts? I heard he hung himself, and eventually the rope broke after he was in the process of decomposition. And when he fell, when the rope broke and he fell, his burst open. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. Well, okay, so that's that's where I go with it. Where Matthew he actually um, accounts for his actual cause of death by hanging, 
And then Luke, in the book of Acts, kind of focuses more on the horror of... of Emphasizing on it. Yeah, yeah, the horror of the death. And, and he says, okay, he through, it, through decomposition, through the rope breaking, he fell and he burst open yeah. into, the, into the rocks. Okay, so who bought the field, though, right? Matthew kind of seems to indicate that maybe Judas bought the field with the 30 pieces of silver. Um, or was it, sorry, was oh, it? No, Matthew. Sorry, that was the Acts ex. said that Matthew yeah. kind of indicates more that he, uh, they took the money. They took the money. Yeah. Right. Any, any thoughts on that? So the two possible ways. Oh, Jude, go ahead. I don't know which two ways you have. So I, I kind of have two possible ways to reconcile this. First, uh, Judas was promised the 30 pieces of silver the day, days before Jesus' arrest. Uh, we see that in Mark. Uh, sometime during those days, he made arrangements to purchase a field, although mo no money had trans been transferred yet because he didn't have the cash, he didn't have the silver. Uh, after the deed was done, Judas was paid, but then he returned the money to the chief priests, and the priest, who considered the silver to be blood money, which we've, yeah. which we'll see, we also see in Matthew 27, uh, completed that transaction on behalf of Judas to go ahead and purchase that field. The other one, when Judas's 30 pieces of silver were thrown down, the priest took the money, bought the potter's field, Judas may not have purchased the field personally, but he provided the money for the transaction, which then could be considered, uh, he could then could be considered the purchaser. Well, it was still his money because they couldn't. Still his money because they couldn't do anything with it, right? And they wouldn't do anything with it. Right. right. So either way, he bought the land, whether it was a prearranged deal and the, the, the chief priest, you know, went ahead and honored that deal, or whether the chief priest went ahead and bought it with that money saying we can't do anything else with it. Right. And they bought it to bury foreigners. Right. Know, bury foreigners in. So. so really, again, people like to bring that up and say, oh, two different ways. Did he hang himself? Did he fall off a cliff? Did he buy the land? Did he not buy the land? Again, if you just read the scriptures and read through the passages and you do some study and do a little research, you see these really aren't that big of a deal. These, these don't affect our core doctrine, and they can be easily explained. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the one I forgot to put in. Gotcha. But another one, um, uh, based on that one too, of Judas throwing the money at their feet, uh, being blood money, it would have been unclean, so the priest wouldn't even be able to touch it. So they probably would have just left it, and Judas might have went ahead and picked it back up, depending on, again, just how greedy he was. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So. Anyway, Austin asked the question, opened the question up. Did anybody have any examples or any thoughts, any questions, rebuttals, concerns? My buddy's father-in-law at one time asked me, he was an unbeliever, he's dead now, but uh, he asked me, he said, uh, you know how uh, the Bible says that God created uh, the earth in six days? And I said, yeah. He goes, why did he stop? And I said, uh, I was kind of on the spot. I said, well, he was done. He was done, and then he rested on the seventh day. He goes, yeah, but why didn't he just keep making more stuff, you know, make things? <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know. I don't have that information. But. <laughs> that, is a, that is a good question, yeah. It's a valid, I thought it was a valid question, too. I was like, yeah, why didn't he want to keep going with, you know, unicorns or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> Who said he didn't? No. <laughs> yeah, he said exactly. Yeah. And I'll, I'll like to come up with this. Yeah. I, I knew the PhD, he said this is good. So, yeah. you know, and at the end of the creation, he said this is good, so he was, he was done. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think that was a good answer, that... He was done. It was perfect. Everything was perfect, and he he, again knowing that Jesus or that God doesn't need any of it, and he wanted it. He created all that he wanted. He didn't want anything else. 
could he have been keep creating and do some crazy stuff? Sure. I mean, that's where you get into the uh, belief of uh, life on other planets, aliens in different galaxies and alternate universes and stuff like that. It's like, well, go back to scripture and in six days God created everything because that's what he wanted and that's it. But no, I, I think it was a good answer. Yeah. Anything else? You got one? Well... <laughs> Sorry, I just pointed you out there. So, I don't have, like, a time when someone asks me a question like that. Yeah. But just a question that popped up in my head was that the Bible didn't mention every creature that was created. Yeah. So, there, there was actually a bacteria that was found um, in space, which was the only living organism ever found in space before. Right. And that obviously wasn't mentioned in the Bible. Right. So, I mean... We can't exactly rule it out completely. Right. I don't believe in aliens. I don't believe yeah. in that kind of stuff. Yeah. Because like, if it's a big deal, I feel like the Bible would have mentioned it. Yeah. But like other types of animals and stuff, it's not going to mention every single one. It's true. And they have found life on Mars. They have found life on the moon. They have found organisms on the moon, organisms on Mars. Granted, that gets into the discussion of, okay, why is it life on another planet, but a baby inside of a mother isn't life, but that's, that's beside the point. <laughs> but yeah, um, for, for me, I don't believe in aliens either. But for me, it goes back to, okay, if God created, say, other humanoids or other creatures on other planets, um, it talks about how Jesus came here and died for us. It doesn't talk about him dying for anyone else. So we would be the only people that have the chance to go to heaven, whereas any other life on other planets wouldn't. Unless he wouldn't play with Right, but it said, <laughs> but then he would have had to die multiple times, and it was one sacrifice for eternity. So that that's oh, my rebuttal to yeah. life. Or we can planets. go just the Mormon route, and we just all become because the gods all become of our own gods planets, and right? So there galaxies. we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but that is a very yeah. valid question, and for unbelievers have that question it's it's good to have an answer for them well i kind of feel and i've thought about that before um something similar to that but you know there's if you look at some of the pictures that um that astronomy has brought us um god has made this universe for us to to bring us joy and part of that is to is our curiosity hmm. the beauty that we get i mean it says that you know if we don't praise him even the rocks and uh, are going right. to cry out. And when you look at some of the things that God has created out in the solar system, I mean, because I'm kind of a space Yeah. But when you look at some of that stuff, it's just mind-boggling, beautiful, yeah. and complex. And it's just, uh, you know, it shows his glory. Is what God's a painter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there, there's a, a, Louis Giglio is a pastor in Atlanta. Uh, a lot of people know who he is. I'm not a huge fan of Louis Giglio, but I like some of his stuff. But he, uh, he did a video series uh, and talked about space. He talked about a lot of the, the stars, and he showed a lot of uh, videos and pictures of, of what we've seen through the Hubble telescope and so on and so forth. And he asked the question, okay, why is that here? And why is this star making this sound back to us, like when we point a microphone at it? What is, why are we getting this weird buzzing sound? And he, he came up with the conclusion that it's for the glory of God alone. It is that star making that noise to proclaim God's glory. Yes. And that's why it's there. Yeah. It's for, like Chuck said, to, for us to see it and to be like, oh my gosh, he is an amazing creator. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He is bigger than we could ever imagine. 
and he it's there just because he wants it there yeah for his glory yeah so I, I have two things on that one that one but then another side to it in Romans where we see Paul talking about how all of creation is groaning for basically God to come back and um, uh, what, what is it maybe I should just go there and read it uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 20 or verse 19 for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, one, the sound could, yes, is them glorifying God, but the other side of it is the sound is them groaning to be set free of the bondage of sin that has been placed on everything created when Adam and Eve sinned. So there, there's another side of that, too. Yeah. Now, the other one of, I don't believe based on my reading of scripture that we necessarily should be going into space now i i do believe in the lunar landing i am not one of those guys <laughs> that it never happened i do believe it happened but the point is what did what was the commission that god gave us in genesis be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the earth not the universe not space not other planets we didn't i don't believe we knew back then but the point was we are to take dominion of this earth. God gave us this earth. Now, it's not saying God won't allow us to go out into, the, into Mars and colonize Mars. But if we ever had the chance to go, I wouldn't. I would stay here. But that's just me. That's just me. <laughs> I don't think the earth is going to be here. And this form is going to be around that long. That's true, too. <laughs> that's true. Well, Anything actually, else? Yeah, we're actually close to out of time. So you want to get to a couple of those real quick? Yeah, sure. And yeah, so um, I'll point some of these out, and I'll, I'll uh, pass them out, and you guys can look at them. These are just some of the tools that I use when I'm actually studying Scripture. Again, looking at the difference between studying and reading. Reading is you are just opening, opening Scripture, you're reading it, and you're, you're rinsing. Whereas studying, you are picking out a verse, maybe two, and then you're diving into other things. So my main reading is ESV, uh, English Standard Version. Version. My main studying is probably New King James. Um, uh, this one, it's a Tanakh. It's a Jewish, Jewish Bible, but it's our Old Testament. It, if you look through it, it's rearranged differently. It goes from Genesis to Second Chronicles instead of uh, Malachi. Yeah. So um, there's one. You can look at it or just pass it around. I have a chronological study Bible. It goes through Scripture chronologically instead of just um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, so on and so forth, kind of going based off of the Tanakh as well because they go based on chronology instead of just putting them together. So that's that one as well. Um, I have a Geneva study Bible, uh, quick history. Um, before the King James Version was put into play, the Geneva Bible was. So the King James was translated from Latin into Old English, 
So from Old English, Latin, Greek, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic. There were, there were several different translation points, whereas the Geneva, Geneva Bible was the first Bible to go directly to the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek translation straight to English. Um, straight to English. Yeah. So if you could read it. It's Old English. It is. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's same English as King James. Um, pass it around. Um, it, it is rated at a... So here's, here's the funny part. So King James, Geneva Bible, they're rated at a 12th grade reading level. 12th grade reading level. Whereas your, I believe it's NIV and there was one other... NIV is rated at a third grade, third grade reading level. ESV is rated, I think, at like a fifth grade reading level. So, so like we're going through these with our kids. We're trying to get them used to that old English, just so that it, it's in their mind as they're growing up. Um, another one, interlinear. Interlinear is. Um, it's, it's a set. It starts from Genesis, goes all the way to Revelation, and it has the Hebrew, it has the Aramaic. And what you can do is you you open it up. It gives you the the English translation on, on the side, but then it goes through and gives you the actual Greek word, and it gives you a number. Each Greek word is corresponded to a number that corresponds to. The Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible, where you can look up that number, look up that number in here, and it tells you everywhere else that word pops up in Scripture, tells you exactly what it means, what it's used for. Very, very, yes. Why is this so important if we have the internet in our pocket? Yes, that is a good question. <laughs> I just, by the way, I use the internet a lot more than I do physical yes. books at this point. So I'm. So the reason, yeah, the reason just... why we have these, I, I use I use it a lot. I actually have an app on my phone that I can do a lot of this. But I have gone through and taught myself how to do this for when we do not have the internet, and. You cannot trust the internet. I mean, that uh, might blow your, your all's mind, but you cannot trust the internet for everything that you see. Wait, wait, wait. Read. The Nigerian prince is going to give me a lot of money, though. It is true. Yeah, anyway. Okay. Uh, the app that I use is Bible Hub. It's a blue circle with a red circle and a cross in the middle of it. That's one of the better ones. Yeah, I like it. The other is the BLB or Blue Letter Bible. Bible's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and also a website, just BibleHub.com. Yeah. And, and they are. They're good. They're very useful. I use them a lot. But we also need to prepare for the point of where, one, we won't be able to use it, and we still need to be able to study like this, and the other side of being able to realize when things start to change. You start reading it and be like, wait a minute, wait, this doesn't sound right. And you can go to your physical copy and be like, they've changed it. Yeah. Because it's coming and it, uh, it's already been here. Yeah. Um, another one, these are historical books. Um, so the works of Josephus. Uh, I have all of his works in here. Um, he is noted to be one of the best kept 
uh, historically accurate historians of the time uh, directly after Jesus, um, being able to capture a lot of the history of eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. So works of Josephus, uh, another uh, history of the Jewish people in the time of Christ, a bunch of volumes there. You can look at them or just whatever. Uh, I use the Baker, Baker Illustrated Bible Dictionary, Handbook, and Commentary. Uh, they are different. Um, you can take a look at them. One, two, three, there you go. Uh, last one is a comprehensive analysis of the Bible. It just kind of, it gives you, sorry. <laughs> this is like 0.001% of our library, maybe. Yeah, and then um, a little bit of a visual diagrams if you'd like. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and Church History gives you actual listed out ways of that. But yeah, you take a look at that, see what you guys think. I Again, these are just some of the things I use. Um, and I would definitely encourage you guys, not all at once, no, no, definitely not. But definitely encourage you guys to get physical copies of things to study. Um, what? We have like we have like 25 different translations of the Bible at home. Um, no, no, we have a few that we don't count as scripture, but we can actually go to and see. Okay, this is what scripture says. This is what other people are reading, and how can I again convey what what true scripture says to what everyone else is reading? Um, so yeah, again. The reason for apologetics, knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and being able to convey that effectively to people in an understanding way uh, is it, so important. So uh, we're going to wrap up. Uh, it's about that time. But it, honestly, for me, thank you guys for bearing with us for the last seven, eight this weeks, is eight, 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 eight week, weeks, yeah. I think, of our four-week class. Four four class. class. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, I've had a blast doing this. <laughs> I, I, I can't speak for Austin, but uh, I, I had fun. Yeah, it's been I a lot of fun. I might keep going. So. Um, so thank you guys. I think Kevin will be back. I think we'll be back to men's class next week with yeah. Kevin, and uh, we'll just kind of go from there. We we might pop up again at some point. I yeah. Know. Might go. Through. I want to play bass every now and then, so I got to get back to do you, that from time. You don't want to go through an eschatology class? Um, of course I do. But. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but thank you guys uh, for doing this, and thank you all for letting us record and and mm -hmm. still talking and let you know letting your voice be over the airwaves. And not being paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> uh, surprise. Hey, Dennis, would you pray for us? Hey, Father, Lord, thank you for this day and for for the wisdom you've imparted to us in your word so that we can go out and answer questions that people are honestly asking and be able to show that your word is in there, that, that everything you have in there is true and it is your word. And as we go out, put us in the put us in the path of those people, Lord, so that we can help them come to you. Bless us as we come back again. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. amen.